0: In the months before Russia attacked Ukraine last year, Pavlo Bondrenko says he could feel the tension building.
1: It was always the question when it's going to happen. So uh, back in December, I already procured all the stuff for survival, like for 3 days' survival. And uh, it was at times when everybody was really nervous because uh, it was it was constant, constant pressure when it's going to happen.
0: Pavlo is twenty-eight years old, and he lives in Ukraine's capital, Kiev. But despite that feeling of constant pressure last year, at the same time he also felt focused, focused on his podcast production company that he had co-founded a couple years before.
1: I finished building uh, this studio on uh, the sixteenth of February, like like a week before, and um, actually I was I was doubling down on uh, all the tasks on uh, on the podcast uh, production. I knew that uh, maybe it will be the last chance for me to try to uh, to chase my dream.
0: A little over a week after Pavlo finished his studio, he found himself, his city, and his country under attack. From there, Pavlo says Kiev changed dramatically in the first months of the invasion.
1: First stage was the uh the february march when uh it was uh risk for kiev and uh, the war was really close it was on streets of kiev i mean but on, only people who left in kiev were people who were involved in army or if, uh, voluntary activities so it was like uh, really scary but really like action movie style thing we lived in the basement uh, of this office uh, building. So uh, we were sleeping on the uh, mattresses that I uh, screwed off of my studio. That They were for soundproofing, and we used them just to sleep on the floor. And it was completely normal. Uh, but then uh, we moved back to our apartments and we started to figure out how to live this new life.
0: A new life for Pavlo meant volunteering with Ukraine's defense efforts. He went from a budding podcast producer to helping gather equipment
1: and funds for the war. And the beginning, it was really chaotic because we were trying to do everything, purchasing cars, getting some stuff from Europe.
0: He started by raising money for some friends he had in the military.
1: And uh, actually, it was uh, really hard to manage because for one week we needed like $30,000, for another week we needed $5,000. Uh, of Then it switched to raising money with Twitter.
0: Using social media allowed him to reach a wider audience to fundraise. Pavlo isn't with an organized charity or company to do this. He works with a team of less than a dozen people to ship supplies to Ukrainian soldiers. As the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion looms, Pavlo's life has changed a lot, but he's also now feeling a sense of deja vu. Nobody is forecasting the end of the war anytime soon. Russia continues to throw more weapons and troops into their own efforts. They recently mobilized some three hundred thousand fresh recruits.
1: It's like it feels like uh, time moves like five times faster than it was normally, and uh, it's a constant rush. And all people in Ukraine are waiting for another aff- offensive attempt by Russians. So this is like a little bit of the same feeling that it was last year, but this time I feel much more prepared and I'm much more aware of what actions I can do to to prevent that.
0: Pablo says he hasn't really had time to think about how he feels about his life. And how much it's changed.
1: And the only thing I try to do now is just to manage my health, my uh, my awareness of uh, the situation, and to focus on persistence. Not on some like uh, really dramatic and cool things, just on boring stuff that I can do every every day. I'm, I talk about uh, mostly about my volunteer efforts because I think that so now the best strategy to survive is to do every day some of of uh, work and then uh, and do it regularly every day. Uh, joy is an act of resistance. I think that joy is an act of resistance is like the motor that. Uh, Mm. that I try to uh, to remember at the hard times when I feel, like, uh, constantly overwhelmed.
0: I'm Michaela Tendera from the Financial Times. It's been one year since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And the cost of that has rippled out into so many different places. So today on Behind the Money we're gonna have a longer episode than we typically do. We'll be spending this time examining the different layers of cost that this last year of war has had. That's the personal cost to individuals, to Ukraine as a country, and to the rest of the world. As you heard, we wanted to start with Pavlo's story as a 28-year-old living in Kyiv when the invasion began. Next, we'll zoom out to talk about what's happened to Ukraine's domestic economy. Then we'll jump to the war's effect on global food prices. And finally, we'll end on how the war has shifted the world's energy markets in irrevocable ways. To understand what's happened to Ukraine's economy, I spoke with the FT's Europe editor, Ben Hall. He says that first, we need more context.
2: Ukraine was one of the poorest, is one of the poorest countries in Europe, with a largely Soviet legacy economic structure. And it had been suffering the after effects of multiple crises through the 30 years of independence, starting with the hyperinflation and brutal transition after the collapse of communism and independence in the 1990s then the financial crisis, then a very, very severe recession after Russia annexed Crimea in 2014 and stirred up a a war in the east of Ukraine, Um, and then then the pandemic.
0: For many years, Ukraine's economy has been dominated by the production of commodities. That's things like steel, coal, and agricultural crops. Those industries have been largely controlled by oligarchs and— That's led to corruption in business and politics.
2: These were men who made their fortunes through political connections largely and then maintained their fortunes and increased their fortunes by using their political influence to make sure others did not challenge them. And it's one of the reasons that has held the Ukrainian economy back. It's made the economy uncompetitive because these are wealthy men who are trying to extract rents from their assets and don't want competition. And that has meant that the Ukrainian economy has lacked dynamism.
0: Still, at the end of 2021, just as Ukraine was emerging from the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic, things were starting to look brighter.
2: Ukraine was beginning to recover and was enjoying some kind of international investor interest as an emerging economy.
0: Then the invasion began. Russian President Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine.
2: Russian tanks rolling across the border from Belarus in the north and Crimea in the south.
0: Millions of Ukrainians, mostly women and children, fled the country. Five to six million more were internally displaced. Ben estimates that a third of all Ukrainian companies completely stopped production.
2: Then there was the direct impact of the fighting itself. Take Mariupol, for example, the city in the southeast of the country, the Ukrainians fought. A last ditch resistance in one of the steel plants there. Those two steel plants were essentially destroyed. And those two steel plants alone accounted for 40% of Ukraine's steel output. The Russians have also bombed all sorts of other bits of heavy industry, oil refineries, other industrial plants. Russia's effective blockade of the Black Sea has meant that it's been very, very difficult for the remaining factories working in Ukraine to actually export their goods of steel and and farmers to export their grain. So even those bits of uh, Ukrainian industry and agriculture that are, are working normally have really struggled to get their goods to market.
0: One bright spot in Ukraine's economy over the past year has been its technology sector.
2: It's been much easier for Ukrainian tech companies to keep going because workers with a laptop can essentially work from anywhere. So this sector has actually done pretty well and even appears to have increased its sales in 2022 and obviously now accounts for a much larger share of Ukrainian exports, which have overall shrunk because of the war. And I suspect what's happened is a lot of foreign companies have wanted to support Ukraine by employing the tech sector.
0: With the tech sector rising, power started shifting away from the oligarchs who held so much of it especially away from the ones accused of supporting or colluding with Russia.
2: They will have had their TV stations shut down or they will have been expelled from the country. But also those oligarchs who are not pro-Russian, who are Ukrainian patriots, have also suffered in this war, not least because many of their industrial assets have been badly damaged in the fighting or their business activities have suffered because of the problems in getting exports out of the country or because of other disruption caused by the war. You've seen the government, for example, uh, seize and nationalise assets owned by oligarchs to serve the war effort. And I think you've seen a real shift in Ukrainian public opinion because of the war, which is a desire to want to see Ukraine change for the better over the longer term,
0: Ben says that the war has proven how resilient and adaptable the country can be. Still, as long as Russian missiles are battering Ukrainians and their infrastructure, this year is likely to be another grim one.
2: There's a huge backlog now of infrastructure that needs to be repaired and rebuilt, and that will probably take many months before that work even starts to happen.
0: Before the invasion, Andrei Wadotuski's family grain business, Nibulon, was booming.
3: We had one of the best years in the history before the war started. Uh, because basically we had uh, the biggest crop ever. Because Ukraine produced more than 100 million tons of grains. There was a shortage of grains in the world. So that's why the demand was high. The prices were high.
0: Andrei's father founded the company in the 1990s. It employs around 6,000 people and operates out of a southern Ukrainian city that's known as a grain hub for the country.
3: Everything was working well until 24th of uh, February. And actually, everything stopped um, just one in one morning.
0: Ukraine is a major exporter of grain and sunflower oil. But that ground to a halt at the start of the invasion. Russia blocked millions of tons of crops from leaving Ukrainian ports.
3: Some of our fleet was stolen. The grain was stolen. Some of our employees were killed. That's a new reality. We actually stopped receiving the credit lines from abroad. International finances just disappeared because of the war risk in Ukraine.
0: Things got even harder for Andriy. Over the summer, his mother and father were killed in an early morning missile strike. And the very next day, Andre says he had to take over the company under these tragic circumstances.
3: I had to find a way and, uh, to try to predict the future, try to uh, plan the financing, plan to, to, uh, to discuss with the banks the future and the different possibilities which exist. Uh, in the company, when nobody knows how to predict the future, your decision uh, is influencing not only the uh, life of uh, six thousand people, but others, the farmers, uh, uh, the relatives uh, of employees. Uh, it's a it's a huge economic effect. Actually, the banks as well. You know so. Uh, because uh, their financial results depend on our performance as well, because we are um, big creditors um, uh, for many banks, and it's important for them to, uh, for uh, that Nibelon is serving the debts.
0: But Andre is still pushing forward.
3: We will never become uh, the same company as it was before the war. Uh, the same as Ukraine. Ukraine will never be the same as before the war. It will be different. How different, we don't know. So the most important is to survive, to save the business during this period of time. And then hope uh, for uh, rebuilding it back.
0: The hits that Ukraine's grain industry has taken over the last year have been felt in different ways around the world. That's because of the important role that Ukraine plays in the supply chain. Here's the FT's commodities correspondent, Emiko Tarazono. It's a number five wheat exporter,
4: and a lot of countries in the Middle East and Africa rely on Ukrainian grain. Um, It's a number three exporter of corn, which is a main source of feed for livestock. And it's a big producer of sunflower oil. It's the number one exporter with a share of just under 40 percent of the world's um, international market.
0: But Ukraine wasn't the only country playing an important role in the supply chain.
4: Russia is the world's largest exporter of wheat. And the fear was that the war would also mean that Russian wheat and also fertilizer would stop flowing
0: out of the country. And a lot of it did. In response to the invasion, Western nations and companies restricted how they traded with Russia. Many countries that relied on the more affordable Ukrainian and Russian grain had to find expensive alternatives. Proximity is very important in grain
4: trading. If you're Somalia and Yemen um, relying on aid, so what happens is the aid agencies buy from Russia and Ukraine and and then send that off to places that are extremely poor. But the war made that impossible.
3: The food crisis here in Tunisia and much of North Africa. In
0: northwest Syria, prices for food are skyrocketing. 11,000 tons of wheat arrived in Lebanon this week, but this will be the last shipment from Ukraine.
4: So countries which rely on the Black Sea have been hit very, very hard. You know, Turkey, for instance relies on both Russia and and Ukraine for wheat, and its food inflation has soared. If you're in one of the war-torn African countries and you need food aid, um, that's also been affected by the war as well. So
0: the scars are quite deep, I would say. Last summer, the most vulnerable countries were bracing for famine. The prices for food and other commodities had peaked around May, and food became this focal point of accusations between the West and Russia. The West accused Russia of weaponizing food. Russia blamed the widespread food crisis on Western sanctions, even though food and fertilizers were exempt from the restrictions. Then in July, the United Nations and Turkey brokered a deal between Russia and Ukraine to get grain moving out of the Black Sea ports again.
4: That really calmed nerves and brought prices down it was regarded as a huge breakthrough because a lot of people were saying, well, what's in it for Moscow? I guess Putin needed the developing countries on side to convince them it wasn't the invasion that was causing food insecurity around the world. It was sanctions from the West as a result of the invasion. So it was a bit, bit of a twisted um, logic on his side, I think. But the fact that the grain started flowing was a huge relief to everyone concerned.
0: One year on, food prices aren't near the peaks they hit last year.
4: I think prices have stabilized. Um, They've come down from their post-invasion peaks, although that's still historically quite high. I think the stability is quite precarious, though. And and when I talk to officials in places like the World Bank, uh, one of them described to me that the current situation is flying with one engine. And the risk of something going wrong, like the grain deal not being renewed or energy prices going up again or bad weather in one of the key producing countries, that could send grain and fertilizer prices soaring again.
0: So Ukraine's economy has suffered huge blows this year. The world's food security teeters on the brink. You could at least make the argument that inflation and food scarcity are a predictable outcome of war. But perhaps less predictable has been the effects of this invasion on the world's energy markets.
5: The full scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia last year has had a seismic impact on the oil market. I mean, really far beyond what anybody might have previously anticipated, and ultimately unprecedented in the history of the oil market.
0: That's the FT's energy correspondent, Tom Wilson, talking there. He says that by the time the invasion happened, global energy markets were already under strain.
5: Basically, ever since world leaders signed the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, pressure had been building on Western oil and gas companies to slow and, in some cases, cease investment in new fossil fuels. And then that pressure accelerated during the COVID pandemic when restrictions on movement crushed oil demand overnight led to further shutdowns of big oil company operations. And that led to lots of predictions that maybe oil demand had peaked. Um, Maybe we were at the end of the oil era. But then when we were coming out of the worst of the COVID pandemic at the end of 2021 and restrictions were being lifted in lots of parts of the world, then we saw this massive resurgence of demand for oil and gas as industry went back to work as people started to drive and travel again. I think A lot of people forget how strained global energy markets were already at the end of 2021.
0: Soon after news of Russia's attacks broke, Tom opened an email on his phone.
5: Three days after the invasion started, I was actually in the park in London with my kids and received a press statement from BP, the British headquartered oil company, that it was going to exit their joint venture with Rosneft.
0: He knew instantly that this was an unprecedented announcement. Rosneft is one of Russia's state-owned oil producers, and BP owned about 20% of that business.
5: I think at the time the statement dropped from their press officer, I was actually on the phone with a source who previously worked at BP, very knowledgeable about the business. That person had said to me, BP won't leave. The joint venture is too important. Um, They'll hold on, they can weather the storm.
0: But that didn't happen. Now, it's important to say that before Russia started this invasion, it was the largest exporter of energy in the world.
5: Not the second largest or the third largest, but the biggest. It was responsible for about 10% of the world's oil and a third of Europe's gas. Historically, the energy industry has taken that position. It's. Felt that you know the world needs energy. Oil and gas are the, a vital source that underpins the global economy. So therefore, there's kind of been a view that energy can be apolitical and that oil and gas companies can continue to operate in places where wars are going on. And there were countless examples of that through history. So I was I was surprised at the pace at which the BP management took that decision. With hindsight, it's easy to say, yeah, that was the only option. But at the time, they certainly could have waited and engaged, okay, how does this play out? How does the West respond to the invasion? But this one was different. And it was really that decision that then triggered the swathe of exits that followed both from other Western oil and gas companies like Shell and and Exxon, and also from other Western banks and insurance providers and professional service companies that all made efforts to wind down their business in Russia. As a consequence.
0: Tom says BP's exit from Russia signaled the beginning of the biggest change in the global oil market in many decades.
5: The impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the oil market has been profound. We've had other energy crises, such as in the 1970s, which led to the formation of the OPEC cartel. And this is really on a par with that, um, if not more significant, because of the lasting impact it's going to have on the way in which oil moves around the world.
0: EU sanctions have banned the import of Russian petroleum products into the region, and that has since pushed Russia's oil exports out to other parts of the world.
5: So as a consequence of those European sanctions, what we've seen is basically a big game of musical oil barrels. So now we've got the situation in the oil market where Europe used to buy lots of Russian barrels, but that's no longer happening. And instead, Russia is sending its oil mainly to India and China, who are paying a massive discount. China has ramped up imports massively, as has India, which was importing very little Russian crude before, but is now importing a million barrels a day, if not more. And then Europe, for its part, is getting its oil now from the Middle East and from the U.S.
0: This has significantly changed the balance of power in oil markets and in the world's economy. And Tom says he thinks it's unlikely to go back to the way things were anytime soon.
5: I think we will see this year and that will continue into into 2024 and 2025 is the rising power and influence of the Middle Eastern oil producers and specifically Saudi Arabia, they've benefited over the past 12 months from this period of really high prices. So they are cash rich. And we've seen that demonstrated by the flow of, of Western bankers and business executives who are going to Riyadh, going to Abu Dhabi to try and raise capital for investments.
0: Tom says that another example of this was President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia last summer, at the height of the energy crisis when oil prices were over $100 a barrel. President Biden touched down in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia Friday. This morning, he is arriving in Saudi Arabia for a controversial meeting with the Saudi crown prince. The goal to convince the kingdom to ramp up oil production and bring down gas prices. But Tom says that when push came to shove, Saudi Arabia did the opposite.
5: It announced a, a slew of cuts to its production targets and the production targets of the other members of the OPEC plus producers' cartel that it runs. The White House was was livid uh, in, in response. But really the fact that Saudi was willing to reject that call for help from Washington, the fact they were willing to reject that overture for the first time, also to me signalled a slightly new era where Riyadh and the other major producers in the Middle East would be more forceful going forward when it comes to oil policy.
0: Higher oil prices have also meant record profits for oil companies all over the world. That includes even those U.S. and European companies that early on faced a financial hit when they agreed to walk away from their Russian projects.
5: It was seen as a financial sacrifice or commercial sacrifice they were making by committing to divest assets that had historically been quite lucrative. But That commitment has been more than made up for the record profits that they've made due to high oil prices. So Exxon last year made $55 billion, which is the highest annual profit ever recorded by a Western oil company. Chevron made $35 billion. Shell and BP also made their highest ever annual profits. Russia's biggest oil companies did did incredibly well. Oil prices were near record levels for most of the year, which meant huge profits for Rosneft,
0: Tom says that the war over the last year may have been a wake-up call when it comes to how people think about energy security.
5: I think there'd been a tendency to feel in parts of the West that the world was almost moving into a post-industrial period where we no longer needed big industry and we didn't really need energy because we had all of these technological solutions. But ultimately, oil and gas continued to underpin most parts of the modern economy. And I think that had been forgotten, and the energy crisis sparked by the invasion has reminded everybody of that fact. I I think the other positive looking forward is that it has forced governments, particularly in Europe, but also in the US, to wrestle with the realities of the energy transition, possibly for the first time. Previously, there was potentially a sense that maybe there could be a smooth transition from a and a polluting hydrocarbon-based world to a low or zero carbon future. And the past 12 months basically showed us how difficult that transition is going to be, how rocky it might be unless it is carefully managed.
0: When I interviewed Pavlo Bondrenko for this show, he spoke to me from the office in Kiev where, a little more than a year ago, he was running his podcast company.
1: Now I understand why I was pushing so hard because uh, uh, this was the. Now I understand at that, that time I was completely happy. I uh, I d- did what I wanted, and uh, it uh, like uh, it fulfills my uh, my heart that I did what I what I wanted, and. Uh, I don't want to come back to podcast production at the moment because uh, the things changed uh, drastically. So it's like a closed chapter for me now, but I, I close it on high notes, like not a lower note, that everything was dest- distracted, uh, everything went bad. No, I did it on my on my own terms.
0: As I said earlier, he told me he doesn't have much time or desire to reflect on what's happened to him over the last year. But... He did have a few thoughts on the cost of this year and what it's meant for him
1: to give a perspective i'm just an ordinary uh, uh, completely globalistic hipster that uh, was involved in uh in um, you know, like like in a general in, 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 I, I I used to listen to uh, all western music uh, i read everything in english and i was um in this sphere of, of culture and, um, and now uh, I'm still listening to some uh, cool uh, post-punk uh, or indie bands but uh, at the same time I am uh, pushing boxes with Star Wings and all other stuff to the postal service and uh, mm, I had a few friends uh, which I attended funerals <laughs> so uh, because they were killed by Russians but... I think uh the, the most of w- w- change of me is that uh now uh, i just understood and accepted that uh i can die any moment and i need to be prepared for that and this is like no like drama sheet that oh my god i'm gonna die i need to do something no so we con- constantly have like a tourniquet band, the bandage mm, uh, also uh, we're always prepared to if something bad will happen in Kyiv, we just grab our backpacks and we have, like, all the um, you know, clothes, all the things, just to straightly go by legs somewhere out of Kyiv. And, uh, um, and it puts a lot of uh, strain on, uh, your, on your mental health and on your body.
0: Whether it's been the toll on individual Ukrainians, those who have lost family and friends, lost a business, lost their homes or the effects on global food and energy markets? These stories we've shared today are just a few examples of how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has left a significant mark on our world over the last year. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Jandera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco and Green Turner. Special thanks to Julia Barton and John Paul Rathbone. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week.